Peace be upon you. So I've been watching this uh, Netflix series called Ozark, and uh, it's similar to some other uh, shows like Breaking Bad, where in this one you have a suburban uh, middle-class family that all of a sudden get tied up with this Mexican drug cartel. And um, they're constantly getting deeper and deeper into the whole crime syndicate and thinking that if they just, you know, do one more bad deed, one more crime, that they'll be able to turn their lives around and go back to being normal. And in the uh, second season, in one of the episodes, the main character makes this comment. It says, evil comes when the righteous path is so hidden, it looks like there's only one way out. And the premise behind this is this idea that if they just committed one more crime, one more bad deed, then all of a sudden they can go back to being a good, outstanding uh, family, um, a good Samaritan. And this is a trick that the devil pulls. He wants us to think that, you know, you committed so much sin, so much transgression, that there is no redemption for you. That if you just commit a little more sin, then tomorrow you can start being righteous. But God will never expect us or, you know, encourage us to commit sin or vice or any kind of transgression in order to be righteous. If we want to be righteous, we have to make the decision to stand firmly with God. In Surah 29 verse 2, it reads, Do the people think that they will be left to say, We believe without being put to the test? We have tested those before them, for God must distinguish those who are truthful and He must expose the liars. Every single one of us, if we claim to believe in God alone, we're going to be tested. We have to make sure that we believe in God and we stick with God under all conditions. No matter how dire the situation uh, appears, we have to make this firm conviction that we're going to stand with God, that we're going to make the right decisions, that we're going to refrain from committing sin and transgression. And God is going to test every single one of us, but He knows exactly what we're capable of. God is never going to burden a soul beyond its means. In Surah 4 verse 66, we read about that God's tests are never unreasonable. It reads, Had we decreed for them you must offer your lives or give up your homes, they would not have done it except for a few of them. Even if such a command was issued, had they done what they were commanded to do, it would have been better for them and would prove the strength of their faith. What I take away from this is God knows exactly what we're capable of. These individuals that are being specified, God knew that if He requested from them to give up their homes or give up their lives, they wouldn't do it. And because of that, He didn't burden them with a request that He knew they wouldn't be able to fulfill. In um, electronics or in any product design, there's different grades a product can be in. Typically, the lowest grade is like a commercial grade. Then you go industrial, automotive, military. And depending on the grade of the product, the level of testing that it's going to endure is going to be that much more. Meaning a product that's going to go inside a cheap consumer electronics is going to be tested accordingly. Because the idea is that, look, this product doesn't need to last. It's going to go in one day and be in the trash the next. But if you're building a product that's going to be launched into space, say a satellite or a shuttle of some sort, you need to make sure that that product can withstand tremendous amount of strain. And so the quality testing on that product is much higher. And as a you know, designer, you know what your product can handle because you've tested it accordingly. And God is similar in the respect that He created each and every one of us. He knows how much we can bear. And the degree of testing we're going to go through is going to qualify us 
depending on what our end application is going to be. The higher the test, the higher the cause of the person, the more the faith of the individual. In 6.132, it reads, everyone will attain a rank commensurate with their deeds. Your Lord is never unaware of anything they do. We read about the examples of the prophets and the messengers and the strenuous testing they went through. And this is because God had them lined up for great things in this life and in the hereafter. And similarly, if we are in a tough, dire situation, that's because God knows that we can endure it. That despite this, we have the potential to get out of that situation, to turn wholeheartedly to God alone. You know, when we face a crossroad, there's a couple things that can happen. One is that we realize what the right path is, but we lack the strength to follow through with it. The other one is that we see what the right path is and what the wrong path is, and we trick ourselves and we convince ourselves that the wrong path is the right path. And this is what happens when you fall into the devil's trap. You lose the ability of being able to differentiate what is good from what is evil. And we self-justify. We say our actions are acceptable when we know full well that they're not. And it's much better to be a weak believer who realizes right from wrong, yet lacks the strength to fulfill the right decision, than someone who tricks themselves into believing that their sinful acts are righteous. In 35 verse 8, it reads, Note those whose evil works is adorned in his eyes until he thinks that it is righteous. God thus sends astray whoever wills to go astray, and he guides whoever wills to be guided. Therefore, do not grieve over them. God is fully aware of everything they do. One of the, the, the biggest losses of an individual is to lose their moral compass, to be so entrenched in sin, so be entrenched in their own uh, nonsense that they cannot differentiate good from evil. In Surah 2 verse 8, God tells us about the hypocrites. These are people who say what they do not do. It reads, <clears throat> then there's those who say, we believe in God in the last day while they're not believers. In trying to deceive God and those who believe, they only deceive themselves without perceiving. In their minds, there is a disease. Consequently, God augments their disease. They have incurred a painful retribution for their lying. When they are told, do not commit evil, they say, but we are righteous. In fact, they're evildoers, but they do not perceive. Now, what's fascinating is this word when it says, but we are righteous, in the Arabic can also be translated as we are reformers. And what I take away from this is that these individuals know what the definition of righteous is according to God, but what they want to do is change that definition to match their actions. They want to reform what it means to be righteous. You know, we have to align ourselves to what God tells us is good, is moral, is righteous. If we try to change that definition to match what we think is right, all we're doing is we're tricking ourselves. We're following our own egos. And the reality is, this is, it gets kind of scary in the sense that if we can't differentiate good from evil, what are we supposed to do when we get to this crossroad where we've been, you know, we think that there is no way out, that we have to just, you know, commit one more sin, one more transgression, one more, you know, uh, bad act, and then tomorrow we can be righteous. God tells us in 643 what we're supposed to do in these situations when we're, we feel like we're being severely tested. It says, if only they implored when our test afflicted them. Instead, their hearts were hardened and the devil adorned their works in their eyes. 
When we're tested and we see ourselves in a bind, we're at a crossroads and we have to determine which path do we want to go. If we lack the strength, if we lack the ability to make the hard decision to join God, to you know, despite what the circumstances appear, that we're going to maintain integrity, maintain righteousness. The only way we're going to get there is by imploring God for that. Now, what's interesting, let's say you're, you know, you've committed a bunch of transgressions, a bunch of sin, and you're thinking, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be righteous, but today I want to commit one more vice. You know, I want to have one more hit. I want to have one more drink. I want to chase my lust just one more time. And then tomorrow I'll be righteous. And I had this question when I was growing up. I said, look, we're supposed to ask God for everything. You know, God says, hey, if anything you need, you have to implore God. What if what I want is sinful at heart? And I know it's bad. What, who, who am I praying to when I'm praying for something that I know is sinful? And I thought about it and what I came to the realization is when you're praying for something sinful, what you're ultimately doing is praying to God to go astray from the right path. You're praying to God to be to go uh, and follow Satan. And that choice of what we choose to pray for is 100% up to us. The effort it takes to pray for something sinful, saying, you know, one more drink, one more hit, or praying for God to help us out of this situation is the same amount of energy. You know, I could ask God for, as opposed to, you know, imploring to go astray, as a, uh, imploring to, you know, commit more vice or sin to get that last fix, I could pray to God to fix this situation for me, to make me be repulsed by doing bad things, by transgressions, by sin, to allow me to not be tempted by those things, to draw closer to God. And if we do that, God is going to fulfill that request. In 2186, it reads, When my servants ask you about me, I'm always near. I answer their prayers when they pray to me. The people shall respond to me and believe in me in order to be guided. This is a choice that we have. What we choose to focus on, what we choose to pray for at these times of hardship is going to determine the direction we should be going. You know, if we're praying for sinful things to be led astray from God's path, then we can't be surprised when all of a sudden our moral compass is completely deficient. In 3135, it reads, If they fall in sin or wrong their souls, they remember God and ask forgiveness for their sins. And who forgives the sins except God? They do not persist in sins knowingly. We know what is right and what is wrong. And we know what decisions we need to make. Once we're at this juncture, if we find it hard to go down the right path, we have to deep down pray to God to give us the strength to be able to do this. We have an example in the Quran from Joseph. Joseph was so ridiculously good-looking that women would be throwing themselves at him. And you would think, you know, this is great. What an awesome uh, blessing. But this is also a curse in the sense where as submitters, we're supposed to maintain morality. We're supposed to maintain our chastity. And we have the example where the governor's wife, who was in charge of Joseph, right, who adopted Joseph as a uh, servant, a slave, she was seducing him. And it reads in 1223, it says, The lady of the house where he lived tried to seduce him. She closed the doors and said, I'm all yours. He said, May God protect me. He is my Lord who gave me a home. The transgressors never succeed. At this time, this moment, this inflection point where, you know, the woman is throwing 
herself at Joseph, closing the door, saying, I'm all yours. He turned to God. He said, may God protect me. And it continues in 24. It says, she almost succumbed to him and he almost succumbed to her. If it were not that he saw a proof from his Lord, we thus diverted evil and sin away from him. For he was one of our devoted servants. How we respond at these junctures in our life, when all of a sudden we see the right path, we see the wrong path, and we have to make a decision, is going to determine which path we go. Because if at those points we forget about God, or we go and chase what's sinful and vice, what's uh, tempting us, then we're going to go astray. But if at those uh, moments we turn to God, we implore God, God is going to give us the strength to make the right decision. We see an example with Muhammad. In 1773, it says, they almost diverted you from the revelations we have given you. They wanted you to fabricate something else in order to consider you a friend. If we're not that we strengthened you, you almost leaned towards them just a little bit. Had you done that, we would have doubled the retribution for you in this life and in the after. And you would have found no one to help you against us. Prophet Muhammad, despite being so close to God, being one of God's devoted worshipers, he almost went astray. And if it wasn't that God strengthened him, he could have leaned towards him just a little bit. And that's all it takes to basically lose God's grace. And it's because God strengthened him that he was able to maintain moral integrity. And it's the same thing for us. We have to continuously be imploring God. You know, despite our situation, despite how much transgression we had, we always have the opportunity to get redemption from God. And what happens is when we commit sin, in essence, we're blinding ourselves from being able to see the truth. We're blinding ourselves from being able to see God's light. In 7438, it says, every soul is trapped by its sins except for those on the right. And there's this plant in Japan. It's called the kudzu plant. And it looks awesome, <laughs> but it's a super invasive species to the point that anything that's in the path of this plant it will completely engulf and deprive of any light. And you can look at these photos online. You'll see entire barns, homes, cars, uh, light posts, just completely overwhelmed by this plant. And it deprives this, whatever it surrounds, of any light and it tries to kill it. And sin is the same way. What happens is as we commit sin, we're slowly and slowly unable to see God's light to the point that we cannot differentiate between good and evil. In 6.122 it reads, is one who was dead and we granted him life and provided him with light that enables him to move among the people equal to one in total darkness from which he can never exit. The works of the disbelievers are thus adorned in their eyes. Now, when we're in these situations, what we have to do is search out God's light. But in order to be able to see, there's a couple things we need. One is we need the eyes and the brains to be able to see light, right? If we lack that sense, uh, we're not going to be able to see. The other one is we have to want to see God's light. You know, there's times where some people, they know what the right decision is, what the wrong decision is. But it's like they don't want to see the right decision because they know the hardship that that's going to entail. So what they do is they cover their eyes and they, they just disregard that as an option. Now, if God is shining his light on an individual and they choose not to see, they cover their eyes, they close their eyes, 
They put their head underneath their blanket. Who is to blame? They are. If they're choosing not to see God's light. But this is a choice that we each have to make. In 2435, it says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. The allegory is his light is that of a concave mirror behind a lamp that is placed inside a glass container. The glass container is like a bright pearl-like star. The fuel thereof is supplied from a blessed oil-producing tree that is neither eastern nor western. Its oil is almost self-radiating, needs no fire to ignite it. Light upon light, God guides to his light whomever he wills. God thus cites the parables for the people. God is fully aware of all things. God is shining his light on everyone. The question is, it's up to us if we choose to see it or not. Five times a day, we perform our contact prayer. And 17 times a day, we're asking God. We're asking God, God, guide us in the right path, the path of those whom you've blessed, not of those who deserve wrath, nor of the strayers. We're asking God to show us his light. Show us the direction we need to go in order to be redeemed, in order to have salvation. Now, what's fascinating is some people, again, they've committed so much sin, so much transgression, that they cannot see God's light. Now, if they actively make the decision to see God's light, there's hope for them. In 2430, we read, Another allegory is that of being in total darkness in the midst of a violent ocean with waves upon waves in addition to thick fog, darkness upon darkness. Now, I'm going to stop there and think about this. How dark is God describing this? He says you're in the midst of the middle of an ocean, right? There is no uh, uh, light pollutant at that point. You're completely independent. And it says waves upon waves in addition to thick fog and darkness upon darkness. Now, you would think that this would be blinding, that someone in this situation would be deprived of any light. But it continues, if he looked at his own hand, he could barely see it. Whomever God deprives of light will have no light. And I was thinking, why does it say barely see it? Why would it not say you can't see it because it's so dark? And my takeaway from this is that despite how dark a situation looks, that if you look for God's light, you will find it. In 3953, it reads, Proclaim, O my servants who exceeded the limits, never despair of God's mercy, for God forgives all sins. He is the forgiver most merciful. This tells me that despite our circumstances, despite what transgressions we've committed, if we sincerely look for God's light, God is going to shine it bright for us. And if we follow that light, we're going to be able to be redeemed. The trick the devil pulls is the fact that he makes you think that there is no hope for you. You've committed too much sin, too much transgression. There's nothing you can do to change the situation. Just continue committing sin and transgression and eventually one day you'll turn things around. And this is a false narrative. God is telling us the moment that we choose to go towards God's light, God is going to help us. He's going to create an exit for us. He's going to transform that situation in ways we can't even imagine. In 9.1.18, we read about the story of three individuals who, when they were asked to come and fight with the believers, they refused. And it reads, Also redeemed were the three who stayed behind. The spacious earth became so straightened for them that they almost gave up all hope for themselves. Finally, 
they realized that there was no escape from God except to Him. He then redeemed them that they may repent. God is Redeemer most merciful. These individuals, they were in such dire circumstances that they thought there was no light, there was no hope for them. And they realized their only escape, their only salvation, the only way that they can fix this situation is if they turn wholeheartedly to God alone. And God redeemed them. And in order for us to be redeemed, we have to repent. In order for us to repent, we have to see the errors of our way, to truly feel bad about what we've done. There's a quote that says, the best time to plant a tree is 40 years ago. But the next best time to plant a tree is today. Each day we have this choice. Are we going to choose to continue to persist in sin and transgression and vice? Or are we going to change our circumstance, implore God loudly, and turn wholeheartedly to Him alone? And if we do that, God is going to fix whatever ailment, whatever situation we're in. God is going to transform our sins into credits. In 65.2 it reads, Anyone who reverences God, He will create an exit for Him and will provide for Him whence He never expected. Anyone who trusts in God, he suffices him. God's commands are done. He has decreed for everything its fate. And it continues again at 65.4. It says, anyone who reverences God, he makes everything easy for him. In 65.7, it says, God will provide ease after difficulty. We read in the Quran that God tells us he's shown us the two paths. He says to pick the difficult path. But if we pick the difficult path, the feeding of the poor, giving to charity, doing righteous deeds, that God is going to make that difficulty easy for us. But we have to trust in God. There is an example I saw in a, the Planet Earth uh, documentary about this bird that travels 1,500 miles through Africa. And at the time of the Sahara Desert, it's looking to get a drink of water, some replenishment. And there is a oasis that's called Um Alma, which looks beautiful from a distance. But as you approach closer and closer, you realize that this oasis is full of salty, bitter, undrinkable water. That if these birds try to drink this water, they would be poisoned and would die a very miserable death. And you would think there's no hope for these birds. How are they possibly going to get the nourishment to continue on their journey? But one thing that's fascinating is that this oasis is full of flies that live off this water, that have the capability of drinking this water and getting nourishment. And these birds, rather than going to the water for nourishment, they eat these flies. They get the hydration they need, they get the nutrients they need in order to be able to continue their journey. Now, God can take something that looks so tempting, but is absolutely poisonous for us, and transform that in a way to create an exit for us. And this is the beauty of God's system, that despite how dire someone's circumstances is, despite how dark the situation is, if we actively seek out God's light, God is going to create an exit for us, is going to allow us to be redeemed, allow us to repent, to get back into God's kingdom. In 2.2.14 reads, Do you expect to enter paradise without being tested like those before you? They were tested with hardship and adversity and were shaken up 
until the messenger and those who believed with him said, where is God's victory? God's victory is near. God is going to push us to our breaking point. He's going to push us to the point that we're almost going to give up because he knows exactly how much we can bear. But it's at these junctures, these points, that a real potential is brought out. And God knows exactly where that is in order to maximize our abilities, our faith. In 2.286 it reads, God never burdens a soul beyond its means and to its credit is what it earns. Against it is what it commits. And this is a beautiful prayer that we should all say every single day of our lives. This is our Lord, do not condemn us if we forget or make mistakes. Our Lord, and protect us from blaspheming against you like those before us have done. Our Lord, protect us from sinning until it becomes too late for us to repent. Pardon us and forgive us, your Lord and Master. Grant us victory over the disbelieving people. So just to recap, we should never despair of God's mercy. God knows exactly what we're capable of handling, and He's designed every situation for us to be able to come out better if we turn wholeheartedly to God. No matter what our past happened, no matter what sins or transgressions we committed, we have the opportunity to be redeemed, to turn wholeheartedly to God, but we have to make that decision. In 13.11, God says that God doesn't change the situation for any people until they make the decision to change. By imploring God, by turning wholeheartedly to Him, by accepting that we are going to choose the difficult path without fearing of the blame of the consequences because we know that if we maintain righteousness, we do the things that God is pleased with, that God can fix any situation. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.